welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 20 of the Free Cities podcast. Today, we're beginning our series of interviews recorded in Poland, and I'm starting out with a conversation I had with Tom Palmer during the Weekend Capitalismu conference. Now, Tom is an American libertarian author and theorist, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the executive vice president for international programs at Atlas Network. Now, just prior to recording this episode, Peter Young, the Free Cities Foundation's CEO, was chatting with Tom in our makeshift studio in Warsaw, and they were having such an interesting discussion, I asked Peter to come on the podcast with us to further the conversation. As a result, after discussing Tom's work at Atlas Network, he and Peter end up deconstructing some of the concepts underlying free cities, and we get a very useful insight into Tom's thoughts on the general validity of the free cities model itself. I won't give too much away here in the introduction, but would obviously like to say many thanks to Tom and Peter for making this a lively and interesting dialogue. And don't forget, if you haven't got your Liberty in Our Lifetime tickets yet, just pop over to libertyinourlifetime.org and pick them up there. And in the meantime, it just leaves for me to say to you, please sit back, relax and enjoy our conversation with Tom Palmer. Tom, Tom Palmer, and Peter, our CEO, has also sat with us. I, I think what I'd like to start with, Tom, is most of our listeners will know what the Atlas Network is, but there will be some that don't. So could you start by just talking a little bit about the Atlas Network? How does it support development? What is it? What's a What's your elevator pitch for it, I suppose, as simple <laughs> as possible. Well, actually, let me start with a little historical background in, in a nutshell. It was uh, founded by Sir Anthony Fisher, who was a, a British uh, uh, Royal Air Force pilot who had fought against National Socialism in the war, saw his brother dying and committed himself to making sure that would never happen again and that that horror uh, would no longer be visited on people. He became an entrepreneur, a farmer, was quite successful. He introduced chicken farming to the UK. And in 1955, he devoted some of his capital to establishing Institute of Economic Affairs and hired, as he said, the last two pro-market economists in the United Kingdom, uh, a wonderful team. But they had a huge impact over the years, study after study after study of all these failures of socialist enterprises, uh, compulsory egg boards, all those different things. And they had a huge impact on Britain. In 1981, he set up uh, Atlas Network with 16 partners. It's since grown and changed and evolved. It's now 526 
partner organizations in 101 different countries. They're all independent. Uh, we believe, uh, we take seriously F.A. Hayek's understanding of the division of knowledge and how knowledge is dispersed, that can't be assembled in one place. You have knowledge that I really can't have access to of time, place, and circumstances, and that's true of people who were scattered around the world trying to promote freer, more just, more peaceful, and more prosperous societies. So we act as a service bureau for those 526 organizations. And then also we raise money, which we act as venture capitalists. We invest in their projects, but we don't manage their projects. We don't direct them. They don't work for us. We make an investment. They have the knowledge we lack. I don't know how the dynamic of uh, political and legal institutions work in Malawi. Uh, the World Bank, of course, knows all these things perfectly well. But we, we don't. And so we take that seriously and we say, go with it. And we've had a number of remarkable successes of local partners understanding their own situation culturally, legally, economically, politically, bringing about tremendous changes that have liberated, well, hundreds of millions of people. Could you mention one of your favorite or most memorable examples of that? There are a lot. But I'll mention one from India that I think affected possibly the largest number of people at one go. So if you've been to India, you recognize that a lot of businesses on the street, they're street entrepreneurs. You don't buy things usually in big department stores. It's not like walking down a street in Germany or, or uh, 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 France or England. Uh, they're little street vendors. That's where most things happen. You get your hair cut there, you buy jewelry there, you buy fruit juice there, you buy clothing there, everything. But they were illegal. It was an illegal business. And as Parth Shah, uh, Dr. Shah, who's a director and founder of um, Center for Civil Society, put it, said, you see a lady who's got a business, and it's, and then he puts out his arms as far as they'll go, it's this big from one end of his reach to the other, and she's been doing this for 29 years, and it never grows. Why is that? Well, the reason is it's not the size of a blanket. She has her wares on it, and when the police come, she has to be able to grab the four corners, lift that up, and run so the police don't come and beat her, thrash her, steal her stuff, and demand money from her. That's why her business can't grow. Well, they brought about a project to legalize street vending. This is a business, and it should have a property structure. This is your place on the street. So you could sell it to someone else, buy out another one. You could grow your business, and you have the dignity of not being constantly harassed, beaten up, and robbed by the police. They rolled it out in Rajasthan. It was very, very successful. And then nationally, and about 38 million people went from illegality and informality to legality. This was a huge change in their status. And one more thing that was important, they trained what they called street lawyers, often unlettered people. These are people who sell fruit juice and home, but they got a motor scooter, they have WhatsApp, they watch the video on their rights and what to do. And if the police are har harassing someone, the word goes out, and these people converge on that space. They say, you can't do that. It's against the law to the police. How did it actually work in practice? Was 
were were there were the property rights on particular sections of street or was it a, a, a system of informally that's how it was before but you had no legal right to it and no legal right to to engage in any business transaction at all that was transformed those businesses were legalized and with it came not only uh, the, the property right as economists talk about it the ability to capture the future stream of, of income in a capital value, which is very important, but also the dignity of being able to look into the eyes of a policeman and say, I have rights, I'm a person, you can't do this to me. So that's just one among hundreds and hundreds of these that our partners have brought about around the world. Yeah, I'll give you one more very quickly in Burundi, something that would never have occurred to most people. The majority of Cross-border trade, and it's a landlocked country, is carried out by women. If you go across the border, you had to have a passport, which meant every time you left it was stamped, and then you come back into the country with eggs or clothing or whatever it was, it's stamped again. Every six weeks or so you have to get a new passport. That costs $120. You have to go to capital in Bojumburo, which is far away. Well, this is for people on such tiny incomes, it's a staggering burden. So what happens? They would cross at night to avoid the patrols. Well, that means the police, the soldiers, and just gangs of predatory men would rape them regularly. Their condition was so awful, and our partner there, the Great Center for Development and Economics of the Great Lakes, interviewed these women, found out the problems that they had, and they proposed radical changes replace the idiotic passport with just a border crossing card. No stamp, no need to get it renewed, just go in and out, no problem. You can do it during the daytime, it's safe, you're not going through the, the forest late at night alone. It's so the incomes of these women go up dramatically and, not surprisingly, consumer prices went down for the rest of the society. So win-win all around. And again, respecting the dignity of these women as traders, that they were not at the mercy of predators, whether they were just gangs or the police and soldiers themselves. So uh, using that example from Burundi, what's the, like, how does someone from Burundi discover the opportunity to, you know, reach out to the Atlas Network? And, and then what happens even from that point onwards? Well, this, this is a story I actually do know something about. Uh, the founder of this organization is a man named Imabla Manirakiza, and I met him in Kenya. I was at a Students for Liberty conference, uh, the African Students for Liberty, and he came to it, and I was speaking at it. The conference was in English, and there's this fellow sitting outside very quietly, and I went up to speak with him, but he didn't speak English. He spoke French. And I speak French so beautifully, it brings tears to the eyes of French people <laughs> when I speak. Uh, so I was able to converse with him at some level. Uh, and then Linda Kavuka, who is the coordinator uh, there in Kenya, uh, speaks Kiswahili, which he also spoke. So between our, our two languages, my beautiful, fantastic, amazing French and her Kiswahili, we were able to communicate, get him books in English and French. He went back, set up this chapter, and then these young people at 18, 19, 20 got into it. Surprisingly enough, 10 years later, they're 28, 29, and 30, and able to have this huge 
policy impact. And also Amabla taught himself English to be able to interact better with a global community in either French or in English. So that's a case of just this one person who came out of great interest to a conference uh, and there were people willing to engage with him. He, he has a heart of gold and a sharp intellect and he's having a tremendously positive impact on his society. You, you mentioned dignity there. And I know that's something that you have hold close to your heart. And you've even written a book with dignity in the title, Development with Dignity. Why should we prioritize dignity? There are a number of reasons. Uh, the first point is it puts all of us on a level playing field. And too many people with development approaches start with, I'm smarter than you are. I'm more knowledgeable. I know stuff you don't know. Of course, all of us know things that other people don't know. But it's so arrogant to think that Jeffrey Sachs, for example, knows how villages uh, should operate in Africa. The, his Millennium Village Project was just a colossal failure. Over $300 million poured into something that, on unbalanced, made life worse for those people. Uh, but he's so smart, and he assumed he knew things other people didn't know, and by golly, they were going to get it good and hard. Dignity starts with the presumption that there are people who know things I don't know. Things about their own lives, insights, wisdom, not available to me. And we need to respect that, to start with this Hayekian, if you will, understanding that there's a division of knowledge. Knowledge isn't the only things you can write down in books or put into Excel spreadsheets. There's all kinds of insights and wisdom that's hard to put into a spreadsheet, but it's dispersed throughout the human race. The other reason that I think is, is significant is that when you talk about economic reform, and I have a, a view about this matter that uh, is not so un, unusual, there are lots of economists who hold this, uh, but it is a divergence from the last 60 years of mainstream economic thinking uh, that, that starts with the idea that you don't simply impose policies on other people. You don't, I don't know exactly what's going to work in your country, your culture, your context. Dignity is about respecting people first. And it's something that all of us want, or at least overwhelmingly, people want dignity. If you try to promote more rational policies, even policies that respect this division of knowledge. And you start by saying, well, here's an economic theory. Let me explain this to you. Well, you have to get people to go down that path, understand economics. That's a big investment to do that. And then, of course, they say, well, where's the evidence? Well, we have a lot of evidence that freer economies are more prosperous. But that's another process of convincing people. In contrast, dignity is something I feel right now. I want it for its own sake. I want institutions because they'll make life better, because we'll get more medicine for our children, life will improve, we'll have higher living standards, I might have enough money to send my children to a good school or buy textbooks or buy eyeglasses, for example. All those things that people in rich countries take for granted. 
But dignity is something that when I have it, I feel its benefit right now. And I came to this realization not only from reading important books, but like Deirdre McCloskey's books, which where dignity is at the center of her understanding of economics. But when I have seen people receive their very first property title, people who were illegally on land, even though they and their family might have been there for hundreds of years, when they finally get that legal title that says, you're an owner of this, I've never heard anyone say, wow, now I get to maximize the capital value of this asset, <laughs> which is equal to the sum of all the future rents it will generate it, discounted by the rate of interest. That's amazing. They don't say that. They say things like what Mrs. Maria Matupi said when she got her first property title in South Africa. She was born um, two years after all the land was stolen from black Africans under the Native Land Act. She was 99 years old when she got her first title. And she said, now I can sleep in my own home. Before that, it had been rented from the local government agency. And she said, now I have something to leave to my children and grandchildren. That's what it feels like to have dignity. And I think that that's a, a better route to explain the, the benefits of markets and exchange is to come at it from this, this angle of the immediate benefit that it generates for me, which is to feel like a human being. Is it difficult to convince people in a large organization that dignity should be something that you should prioritize? Because it's, it's, it's a, a relatively intangible thing. I think it's easier for people to look at a spreadsheet and go and say, yeah, this is a much beneficial very beneficial to have these property rights, like you say. But um, is that something that you brought into the organization, or was that something that the organization already... Well, in Atlas Network, I think that it's actually part of our DNA, but it's something that we've come to embrace and explore and understand better. And part of it is learning to do something that's really hard. It's very hard for me, too, and that is to be humble to to show humility, to be able to, when asked the question, say, well, that's a really hard question. What do you think about that? How would you go about that? Rather than saying, oh, of course, I know the answer to that. And that takes practice. But it also takes institutional practice because internally with our organization, we also have the same temptation to say, oh, God, that looks like a terrible idea on their part. Let's, let's tell them not to do that. And we refrain. So let them try out what they're going to do. Because they know stuff about how th things work in the highlands of Peru that I don't know. And if it's about changing institutions, they are more likely to understand those levers and opportunities for change much better than someone who lives outside of the country, doesn't speak the indigenous language, and so on. Okay, then. Let's talk about the free cities model, then. And I'll, we'll try and be as humble as we can. 
because before I turned the... Um, by the way, I know everything about humility. Yes. I'm the most <laughs> humble person you will ever meet. Yeah, I gathered that. That was my first impression as you burst through the door earlier. <laughs> um, but the, obviously the Free Cities model, the Free Cities idea is a work in progress. And we were talking before I started recording about some potential problems with the ideas behind it. So remind me what you were pointing out when we were talking in the three of us earlier. Why don't we start actually with something a little different and then lead up to that. And that is some of the things I find exciting about the idea and the historical precedents that I think make this uh, uh, potentially very fruitful. So if you look at the development of civil society, it's about society in cities. And these were self-governing cities. It's a wonderful book. I don't know if, if you've read it by Henri Piran, uh, widely noted as the greatest Belgian medieval historian ever. It's, of course, it's a fairly small list of people, but he was a truly great historian. Uh, and it's just called Medieval Cities. It's a short book. And is still in print over 100 years after publication by Princeton University Press. And he talks about the origin of freedom and the commercial revival, which is to say the growth of prosperity, in the free cities of Europe. And the fact that they were not subject to any one imperial or royal power, but they had autonomy. And those cities were able to experiment, but then also to copy what others were doing that was successful. So the Magdeburg cities is a good example. The laws of Magdeburg were uh, renowned for being very fair, straightforward, understandable, and efficient. And other cities would send delegations to Magdeburg to copy down their laws and bring them back, and they became Magdeburg cities. Or the Hanseatic League, which is a league of free cities, uh, that had a Hansa in the city, the Merchants Guild, if you will. Uh, and those were places of commerce and also places of liberty. There's an old principle uh, in German, Stadtluft macht frei nach Ablaufe von Jahr und Tag. So city air makes you free after the lapse of a year and a day. If you were a serf and you ran away from your uh, feudal lord and you managed to get into a city, and you could be there within the city confines for a year and a day, going from one Starbucks to the next uh, throughout the city, you became a free person, and the city would come to your defense. And there are many historical examples that are recorded of feudal lords saying, oh, that man is mine, go and fetch him. And the local burghers come out and say, no, burger just means citizen. So... The cities of Europe were places of innovation, of trade, and of freedom. So I think that there's a lot of historical precedent for focusing on free cities. So I do find that uh, intriguing, interesting, uh, even exciting as a possibility to uh, bring about such transformation, particularly in low-income areas of the world that haven't had this kind of civil liberty because they had various colonial uh, governments imposed on them and then the successors to the colonial governments that inherited these uh, predatory state structures 
that were not yet nation-states. You have multiple nations in uh, uh, most African countries, for instance. There's a multitude of nations, but they got this one state imposed on them by the British or the French or the Portuguese or, or whomever. Uh, so they haven't had quite the benefit of having this experience of innovation, of multi a multitude of different places with different rules to try out what works better and then copy the ones that are successful. So I think that's quite exciting. I do think that there are some issues that need to be worked through about the constitutions that govern such cities, about questions of, let's say that it's an agreement that people sign, this is going to be the, the ground rules uh, for this free city, these are the governance mechanisms uh, are they eternal? What happens if children are born there? I mean, that happens, right? Turns out, amazingly enough, babies get born, and they didn't sign the contract. But there they are born there. Are they bound by it? What voice will they have in future as they become uh, moral and, and legal agents to live under it, to adjust it, to depart Make other choices. Well, I, well, let's start with that then. Are, are these contracts eternal, Peter? So uh, the first thing I'd say is that there's a bit of a distinction between a free city and a free private city. So at the foundation, what we do is try to create more competition in what we call the market of living together. We think that there should be more governance models available for people to choose if they wish to migrate. And we call anything that is a self-governing territory that upholds individual rights and freedoms as a free city. But within that banner, there can be multiple different models that are tried. And we used to be very focused on, and still are very focused on, the free private cities model. And this is a model which has some quite prescriptive governance mechanisms within it. So this is a model where the city itself is run by a for-profit operating company and there's something called a citizen's contract where every citizen has a contract with the governing entity. It's not necessarily the same contract, but the idea would be that that contract itself cannot be violated by either the operator or the citizen or within the contract there is a agreed-upon mechanism for making a particular change. So in answer to the question, is the contract eternal? Um, it, it could either specify that it was eternal or it could have an agreed term. So that would be an entrepreneurial decision for the city operator. They would put this to the, to the citizen and the citizen would decide whether they wanted it to be eternal or whether they wanted it to have a fixed length. And if my daughter was born, she inherits this contract or is it is it automatically bestowed upon her obviously she doesn't get the she doesn't get a moment to sign it herself yeah it's a great question so not necessarily again this would be something for the operator to decide but one of the key differences between a purely private model and a normal government model is that it's the private model is more like a subscription service now the idea that people are citizens and members of a society perpetually 
without uh, contributing anything to the society in terms of the upkeep of the infrastructure, the police and all these things. It's a good idea in theory, but in practice, people do pay for uh, government services through their taxes and through um, various mechanisms that, that governments have to make sure that people are, are taking on some of the cost of the public services. So the difference between the private government model, governance model and a conventional state would be that in the private governance model, there is a you know, specified amount that people would have to pay in order to kind of be a member of this member of the city. And it would most likely be the case that if you did decide to become a member of a free private city, it wouldn't be possible to pass that citizenship onto your children uh, and have that sort of given to them perpetually for free forever. But I think what you'd find in, in a future where there's many different private cities is that the dynamic would be more that the cities were competing for the children because humans are the most valuable asset we have in the world. Um, human labor, human ingenuity, uh, cities want to have customers, they want to have people to contribute to their economy. So I think there would be a dynamic where it wasn't the case that people were kind of worried about having their citizenship taken away. It was more that there would be lots of competition from different city operators to get the children on board or get the uh, recent migrants on board. Do, do either of you happen to know whether that's what happened in the free cities of medieval Europe? There are so many, it's hard to say something categorically about all. In general, the councils are made up of guilds. They were business people. So when you see these Dutch masters paintings, uh, those are the merchants. Uh, and they were the ones who had that authority within the city sometimes. And of course, go to the city of London. If you've been there, the actual city of London, not the big sprawl we called London, uh, and Guildhall, uh, there are uh, guild shields there on the walls. And in the various districts, there are odd and unusual voting arrangements in terms of the numbers of voters who vote there. Some of them are actually, the vote is cast by a corporation. In some cases, it's cast by individuals. And the numbers vary from one subunit to another. Uh, the City of London pre predates the Parliament of, of, uh, of Britain. So uh, those things changed over time. There was a general move to recognize that adults were citizens and that they had rights. And those rights also included participation in the governance of the city. So initially, of course, the guilds uh, offered a variety of public goods. They came over time to become very anti-competitive uh, monopolists. They would exclude people from entering the trade of making cups or candles or hats or whatever uh, their various trades were. And you can see colorfully in the Guild Hall in London all of the different things. There's hats and candles and so on on these shields. And they became themselves highly predatory. And there were a variety of revolutions. Revolution doesn't always mean violence. Revolution can be peaceful, but, but dramatic transformations to bring about situations in which all of the adults in the city had some say in the governance of the city. Now, of course, with that also came responsibilities to the city in the form of taxes for the provision of the public goods. So 
they changed and evolved over time. I'm a little concerned about eternal contracts because the world will change in ways we don't anticipate and possibly there'll be some fatal problem written in that contract. You do need mechanisms for them to be adjusted. Good constitutions have some mechanism for changing them, but normally not just the 51%. If you have a minority being able to change it, well, they're going to screw everybody else. That's what they're going to do. When, when I have the power, my friends and I will run rules that are beneficial to us and hurt the other 8,000 people. This is not a surprise. I hope I wouldn't do that, but we know the temptation to power is in all of our hearts. Uh, well, if it's just 51%, then you can get shifting majorities and it becomes too unstable. But 100% becomes too rigid. You can't change at that point. Sure, 100% out of six people, that's not that hard. Out of 6,000, there's always some, the 5,999th person who's just a bastard and won't allow things to change because it's always been that way. So where do you find the right balance? And James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock wrote a book about that, The Calculus of Consent. And it's not only about governments as we understand them today, about states. It's about governance of any collective enterprise. Where do you find that right balance of how you can change the ground rules in ways that will also still protect the rights of people who are minorities? Well, come on in, Tom. What's your preferred governance model in that sense? How would you run a How would you run a private city? I'm I'm unlikely to be called on to do so, um, but I do think that what I'll put up is a couple of issues that I think people answering this question would need to address. And the first one I think that's so obvious is, what about children? So people move in, and they have kids. Do those kids become effectively stateless? Currently, if you join a condominium or a homeowner's association, I'm a member of a homeowner's association, have a house, and we have uh, you know, security who zooms around the street on little motorbikes, uh, and alarm systems that people will check, and there's a public pool that all the members can go to and so on, and we pay for that. That's a homeowner's association but it's situated within a wider political legal body and people don't give up their passports, their citizenship when they enter the homeowners association. Now it's true if I wanted to violate the rules, like have some loud music at 4.30 in the morning or something like that, I could lose my rights there. I could have various negative consequences. I could be fined and so on. Uh, if I move out, I lose my rights to vote in the Homeowners Association. But the Homeowners Association couldn't decide, you know, we're, we're going to make it illegal for you to have an aquarium. I happen to like aquariums, and I have three of them. Uh, those are inside my house. And they, they can govern what's outside my house. Or the externalities I impose on others. But they can't come in to my house. There are some restrictions in that regard. If you have children and they inherit that property, they also inherit it with a set of obligations. They have to pay the homeowner's fees dues. 
on a monthly basis, and so on. But if they leave, they don't suddenly become stateless people. And that, I think, is, is a, f- a fear that I would have. You'd have to have some mechanism that people who say, yeah, I don't like it here. My mom and dad liked it, but I don't. Do I become stateless? Currently, obviously, that's not anything that is of an issue because there aren't any examples of free cities existing outside of the state currently. But what do you think about the chance of that coming to fruition? So the question in particular of whether you could become stateless if you were a child of a free city, I think there could be a mechanism um, that a free city could adopt if you were particularly concerned about that, that a city could offer some provisions such as a right to uh, be within a particular country. But I guess there's a moral question about whether someone has indefinite leave to remain in a particular place if they have really violated the rules of society. So for example, if I am a a very violent criminal and I violate the rules of a given society, is it right that I should be allowed to stay within that, the confines of the land that is governed by that society? Um, I think there are some people that would say that actually um, you don't have a right to remain if you are violating the rules. Um, but in general, um, as I say, I think there would be a dynamic whereby the cities would be competing to have people people move to them. Um, if you, you were at the beginning, when we were talking before, you were talking about shopping malls, right? And so it's very rare that a shopping mall would seek to keep someone that is just not wanting... Uh, just doesn't like a particular area to to not enter their their the confines of their land. They're they're off. They're always trying to compete to get people in. And I think in a world where there were lots of um, free cities, it would be more of a competition of trying to get people, children into your area or adults into your area. Well, here here's a, a reasonable concern, in my opinion. Uh, often people believe in in governance structures that don't only say you can't break into someone's house and steal their aquariums or whatever, Um, but also govern how you comport yourself in public because there's going to be public areas of a free city also, right? There's streets and areas, parks, who knows what, that are public. So we'll take one that um, in some parts of the world is considered an outrageous imposition and in most of Europe is not, uh, and that is walking around naked, Right, so I don't walk around naked outside of my own house, uh, and I'd be a little surprised if I saw other people doing that. I'm not that much of a prude. I don't wouldn't force a principal to resign because she showed Michelangelo's David to children and so on, as just happened in the U.S. But um, it would it would certainly surprise me. So let's say there's a rule at a shopping mall: you can't walk in uh, stark naked. Okay, that's the shopping rules, uh, shopping malls rules. Most of the other shoppers would find it uncomfortable. It's certainly in Northern Europe, maybe not so in some other parts of the world. But in Northern Europe, the other shoppers would be made uncomfortable by that. So we don't allow naked people to come in. Well, what about people who don't share our religion? Catholics, right? So well, no Catholics can come in, or or no Muslims, or no one with a uh, headscarf or 
wearing a crucifix, or who knows what, all these different sorts of things. Well, are those like the rule that you can't be naked coming into the shopping mall? Now, of course, for religious institutions, we do have that, right? I walk into a Buddhist temple, I take off my shoes. I walk into a mosque, I take off my shoes. I walk into a, a synagogue, I, I put on a hat. Right? Those are the rules. I don't walk into a Catholic cathedral and in a speedo, swimming suit, and a and, and shirtless, that's disrespectful. Well, one could imagine a free city saying, well, those are the rules of the free city as well, because you make us uncomfortable if you come in wearing a headscarf or some sign of Islamic or Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist identity. Uh, that starts to sound a bit more like a, a kind of a tyranny, particularly because children don't always follow the religious views of their parents, right? So you might have been born into a very religious family of sort of type X, and then you grew up and you reject that, either to adopt another religion or no religion, or some different version of your parents' religion. Do you get kicked out now? And I think that, that that's why the, the substantive liberalism that I think has, has enriched the world and respects our dignity needs to be built into these kinds of uh, governance structures. That is to say that, uh, yes, the mosque, synagogue, temple, church can say, you want to come in here, this is how you need to behave. But we don't say of the whole free city that, yes, you have to take off or put on a scarf or whatever, in order to enter into our city. That would sound like a tyranny, and particularly when you th consider the multi-generational dimension of it, you end up with lo what looks like a localized tyranny, rather than the free society that you obviously have in mind. So I guess the question would be, if we think about some of the examples you've given, like people walking around naked in public. There's no sort of objective moral principle that says that that is, that is wrong. And there's no objective moral principle that says that should be allowed. What we're proposing is that people should be able to decide whether they live in a city where that kind of behavior is allowed or whether it isn't. And equally, if they do have a deeply held religious belief about something, I don't think there's anything wrong as long as it's a peaceful environment where everyone involved consents to them saying this is oh, this is an environment where you have to um, engage in a certain kind of behavior that um, aligns to our religion. The thing is that if you have lots of small jurisdictions and they're competing on the free market, then the kinds of system that we would describe as tyranny just wouldn't make good business sense. This is why you very rarely get shopping malls where they say everyone here has to cover their head if they want to come in or everyone here has to engage where wear this particular item of clothing if they want to come in because you're excluding a huge amount of potential customers and you would you would end up either going out of business or just being confined to a small niche market. So I guess what we're arguing is that there's nothing sort of objectively morally wrong with having certain areas like 
It's a question of scale, right? Because it's interesting that you were saying it's okay in a church, but not on a city scale. So I guess the moral problem you have is that the scale of, of where, you know, you, these restrictions lie. And I, I think with a free city, there's no objective pre-prescribed size. A free city could have 200 people or it could have 2 million people. Um, the market could basically work out where, where what the right economies of scale are for the cities. And there could be some small cities and some large cities. But I think if there are systems that are being proposed that we would regard as tyrannical, they just would end up being very marginal, wouldn't make a lot of business sense. And we tend to see more and more uh, pro-human systems because those are the ones that people find more attractive. And you'd see people moving to them, migrating to them. But they time. would, but they would still exist. A a um, a free city in which uh, everyone had to wear a headscarf, for example, would still exist, or could still exist. You would just assume that there wouldn't be many proponents. If people signed, if all people signed up to it, and I agree that Tom makes a really good point about children, because this is, I think, a, a classic problem in Austrian economics or in economics in general. The a lot of the morality of economics is is whether or not people consent. And as you know, an, a sort of anarcho-capitalist or Austrian school principle is that anything is is moral as long as people are consenting and you're not harming or coercing other people. I would say that's broadly a kind of um, non-aggression principle um, uh, that's that's adhered to by lots of libertarians. But the question is, with children, does that same thing apply? Because many people would say that children don't have the ability to make free and informed choice in the same way that adults do. So there is definitely a gray area. And the question is, do you have a definite cutoff point or do you defer to the parents in that situation? And I think you would have to, you would in practice have to defer to the parents until the children became of a certain age. Um, but what the free cities all have in common, whether or not they are, you know, going to be dominated by people that believe you should wear headscarves or dominated by people that say that you should wear what you want is um, that they're going to have to have a, a uh, provision. They, they, the, the key thing about them is that people all consent to the system. And obviously you can't consent if you're a child, but when you come of age, you have a choice as to whether you want to remain in that system. And the less attractive that the city operator makes it for people to remain, the less well they'll do, the more marginal they'll remain over time. I think what there, about? I think I think though that there are two assumptions in what you've articulated, which I find very attractive, and you need to to dig them out, make them explicit, and and address them. And the first one is there are some people who very much like living in highly restrictive environments. I mean, that's not everybody has a what came to be called a bohemian character or cosmopolitan. There are lots of people who like very closed communities, and there are some that function that way quite well on a voluntary basis. Think about the, the um, uh, uh, old order Amish, Mennonites, and Hutterites, religious communities across the Americas. They were uh, Swiss and uh, uh, bohemian um, religious communities, and they have a lot of control uh, regarding technology, use of cell phones, and so on. There's a spectrum of them. They're voluntary in the sense that uh, one thing, they uh, evolved the principle that teenagers can have this period of wildness, um, that they can do stuff that 
the adults say it's forbidden, but they don't see it. They smoke cigarettes, they drink alcohol, the girls wear makeup, etc., etc. Um, and then they get over that, and either they stay with the community or they leave. But those who leave, it's a very difficult process. You lose everything. So I knew someone years ago who was an old order Mennonite, uh, and uh, he had a very difficult experience. He, his parents or community found out that he was gay. It's not acceptable in that community. His father, the minister, struck his name from the Book of Life in the church service, and none of his former friends or family ever even recognized him again. Go down the street, they wouldn't see him. He lost everything. Now he worked things out, landed on his feet. That is a very harsh, very high penalty for leaving the community. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, there may be people who do like these close-knit communities. Now the Amish and so on have dealt with this question of children leaving, and they, leave, they lose about half of their children to the world, as they say. But they have a very, very high birth rate, so it, their communities continue to grow, but they hemorrhage into the wider society, which is there and able to accept them with the citizenship of Canada, United States, Mexico, Bolivia, Brazil, all the different countries they're in. They exit it with that citizenship, having borne a very high cost. Uh, the second thing is uh, that there's an assumption that there are clear limits, which might or might not be specified in a city charter, as to what the governance institution can do to people. So, okay, can they tax them to provide public goods? We need a new road system, maintenance. Okay, so like my homeowners association or condominium associations, I've been on condo boards. We raised the fees because we had to repair the roof and so on. But could we also prescribe flogging for people who had parties on prescribed evenings? Um, I had some, when I had a condo, there were some people lived upstairs and they, they partied too damn late. And I would go and bang on the door and explain 10 o'clock is late enough when other people work in the morning. Um, but could I have said, okay, the condo board has decided we're going to take you out and flog you in the hallways of the condo? No, right? Even if we wrote that in the Constitution, Let's say we, we had a condo meeting. We said flogging is the penalty for partying too late or making noise. Uh, no, we, we don't do that. We certainly, and then, of course, the, most ex the more extreme version, we couldn't behead them or do horrifying torture them and so on. You can't steal their stuff from them. So there's a whole bunch of restrictions that are, are background restrictions as I heard you saying it, you assume those are all background. You can't, you wouldn't write them all down in your constitution, all the list of things that are prohibited to be done by the association. So in most constitutional orders, there's broad language, right? No cruel and unusual punishment, and so on in the American constitution, which has evolved over time as to what that has meant, what are standards of unusual and standards of cruelty. So there's a lot of of assumptions at work in what you've described that I think need to be addressed openly 
for, for two reasons. One, this exit option has to be protected as an absolute right. Mm-hmm. You don't like it, you get to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, you might leave behind your family and friends, as people do when they leave an Amish community. Very, very high. It's hard for us to imagine if we didn't grow up in that community what that would be like. Uh, but you have the right to leave. And if anyone stops you, they are engaged in a criminal act. Now then the question is, who, who, who punishes them for that? They say, we're the owners of this. So who's going to punish them for having restrained someone from trying to leave? Right? So there needs to be some mechanism for that. Which I, I, th- I think there is a mechanism. Before you answer that, can I just ask you one question? You were talking about Amish or mm-hmm. leaving in large, relatively large numbers. Is that right? Or is it Mennonites? Sorry. Well, the, the, this, these broad communities. Yes. Do you happen to know how many of them come back? I don't. No. It is a drain. It's not a, it's not a we go, try the other world, come back. Because obviously that's an important mm. aspect of the free cities model is that one would expect people to leave, to try something else. Mm. I don't know the answer to that, to that question. Um, those societies are compatible with the free society, they're embedded, but because they're embedded within wider free societies. And they do not restrict the right of exit. In fact, they don't use coercion at all. Uh, they don't beat their children. They don't carry, they don't use weapons. They're pacifists. I mean, this is very important to them. They don't fight uh, in the usual sense. They don't, they frown on fisticuffs and things like that. So they're, they're nonviolent, but they still manage to impose an extraordinarily high exit cost. So imagine I came up to you, I said, well, here, you've, you've done something. You have your choice of these two penalties. Number one is someone will slap you around and then take $600 from you. Number two, everyone you know will consider you dead to them. Your parents, your grandparents, your siblings, your cousins will consider you dead. Which one is the worst penalty? Now, the first one violates clear rights. Second one doesn't seem to. I don't have a right that my parents, at least above a certain age, recognize me. But by gosh, that's a terrible. The second one is clearly worse. Any normal person would say, oh, that would be a much more terrible penalty. Um, so to come back to this question, though, you, you need to bring out those assumptions. There are limits to what a governance body can do to you that they could not assess, like go to the island of Aceh in Indonesia, they say, well, we're self-governing, we're a Muslim majority, and so people engage in behavior we don't like, we flog them publicly, which they do. And uh, that's, in my opinion, grossly unacceptable. Mm. But would it be, could, it be, could there be a so-called free city in which people could be dragged out of their beds and flogged? The reason it's a tricky question is because there are some people, so I could give a personal answer, like what kind of city I would want to live in or what in theory could work. And there are some people that say, if you commit a crime, you should be punished for that crime. 
And I want to live in a society where people are punished by being, for example, imprisoned. In fact, imprisonment is the default model that we have for punishing criminals in virtually every society. And the model there is that someone, if they do commit a genuine crime, so let's put aside crimes that we would find contentious for a moment, but if they do commit a genuine crime, such as stealing someone else's property or committing murder, they impose this cost on society by committing the crime, and then society then has to take on another cost, which is the cost of keeping them in a prison for their entire life, uh, if it's a very serious crime. In the past, people used to use exile as a way of punishing criminals. And this was an alternative way in which the costs of that person, um, person's crimes wouldn't be reimposed upon the populace. And I think that's a potential, that's a potential alternative to, to the criminal um, system that might, that might come up. Um, and I think that that's probably the system I would prefer, where it was more, when you think of exile, it's more, you've committed a crime, therefore you're not allowed to come, come back in. But I can see that some people rationally would say, hey, I want to voluntarily sign up to a system where there are prisons. And I can see that some people rationally could sign up to a system where going in, they knew that if you do X, Y, and Z, there would be a corporal punishment. For example, um, if you are committing a violent crime against some someone else, someone might say an eye for an eye, that's a fair way to do it. Uh, but I think at the at the core of what we, we do is the principle of consent and that people agree to whatever the system is that they that, that the city that city has before going in. I'm glad you brought up the question of exile because in the free cities of Europe, and again there were many, so it's hard to speak to generalize, but as a general principle, corporal punishment, burning at the stake, and so on, was not practiced there. It was considered an ancient privilege that they didn't have that. They had a system of fines and ultimately expulsion. If you were to be such a violent person that you you broke the peace of the city, um, peace was considered something um, more contextual and not as abstract as we use the term today. You had a piece of your home. An innkeeper had a, a piece of the inn, P-E-A-C-E. Uh, and if you started a fight within the uh, restaurant, you broke the piece of the restaurant. And you could be expelled and you might be fined for having done that. And there was a piece of the city. It's also a king's piece. And so on. we have these expressions People can still remember it to think about the king's peace, but every city and even every institution had a peace that you could break. And if you broke that peace, you had committed a harm. And the harm was to be recompensed by compensation. And then ultimately, if you're just an incorrigible, you know, the Peter Youngs of the world, who's constantly getting in fights and so on, uh, the ultimate penalty was not to burn you alive or flay you or do something horrifying like that. That's what the political institutions outside the cities did. That's what the kings were doing. But the cities maintained as their privilege that their citizens were not subject to that. And the ultimate penalty was frequently to be expelled. You're going to be a violent, dangerous person who can't live with other people? Go live outside of the city. Mm. Do you happen to know how they enforce that, actually? 
How do you, how do you enforce? They, like, they, they they kick them out. Yeah, but and how <laughs> that, presumably you could just get back in? Like how no, how because how? cities had walls at that time. Sure. So presumably your free cities are going to have who knows what some security perimeter or something like that, and and they had gates. You had to walk through, and there were night watchmen, and they were were watchers there at the gates, and they said, "Oh God, it's Peter again." Uh, he gets into so many fights. He can, you can't come in, Peter. They, the city council judged you. That's the fifth time you had a fight. You can't come back into the city anymore. Too bad, Peter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was that was the system, and um, I think you could have that same. You could you could rationally argue that that would be uh, that system could be tried again in a modern way. But before we move on, I just wanted to come back to this um, point about the the Amish and leaving communities because I think one thing that we can all agree on is that we want people who leave communities to have options um, in the world and Amish communities exist and some people would say they're good some people would say they're bad um, but they're going to exist regardless of whether we have free cities or whether they exist within the United States and I think the problem you are addressing earlier the question you were asking is what happens to people that choose to leave do they have a sort of added obstacle of becoming stateless right which would make it harder for them to leave and i think that's a really um, valid um, valid point what i would say is that there is we live in a world whereby within a state you can migrate if you're a citizen of the state but most states have a fairly tough immigration policy and I would argue that the reason that they have that is because it's not 100% clear when you have a very large welfare state, which you do in many Western countries, whether someone is going to be a net contributor to the state or whether they are going to be impose a cost on the state. So, for example, if you're someone who is moving to the United Kingdom, you can become a citizen and you can immediately access um, schooling, healthcare, um, all of these uh, the road network, um, public libraries, like many different things that uh, are provided and paid for by the broader population. And some people would say that that's legitimate, but there are other people that would say that that's imposing a cost on society because the people that, that come haven't paid for those services. The difference in a free city would be that because you don't have a government-administered um, welfare state, there are not ways in which new arrivals can directly impose costs on society in a mandated way. Any kind of aid that's given is given on a voluntary charitable basis. Now, you, you've just specified something that goes contrary to your earlier principle. What if the members of this free society say, we do want to have a, uh, a mechanism to help those who, who fall on misfortune. We do want to have... Uh, an institution to take care of the welfare of the least well-off, of people who suffer terrible uh, accidents or uh, are born with congenital difficulties in our society. We don't just want to kick them out because someone was born with Down syndrome or with some, some developmental or physical disability. Uh, so someone who comes in is getting a part of that, but so now you, you specified that's not allowed, but earlier you said, hey, it's up to the people who set up the community as to what they want. So I guess this comes back to the distinction between a free private city and a free city. So a free city is more 
anything that people consent to is is okay. And a free private city is, a, I guess I was talking about that when I gave the example, is a fully privately operated jurisdiction where there is no kind of um, welfare state where all of the individual services that we normally associate with government are provided privately. This would be an option in the free cities model. So if, if there were more free cities, some of them would be this version, this private city model. And it's an entrepreneurial choice as to whether people would choose that or choose something that was more in line with the traditional nation state. But the point that I'm making is that if we want there to be more places that people can turn to when they have had difficulties in their fam family or are refugees, then having systems where you don't get sort of automatic payments from the state, I think that would create, that would flip the tables in favor of the refugees and the migrants because it wouldn't be possible for people to not consent to someone who was maybe, say, uh, a criminal or maybe was not going to be um, contributing to the, to the state in some way. Uh, it wouldn't be possible for them to receive resources um, through a state mechanism. But what would be possible and what I would argue many people would be freely willing to contribute is for the charitable sector to um, help people that are in that situation. So... I would argue that having having a world in which there were more jurisdictions, including fully private governance systems, there would be many more opportunities for people that are um, trying to get out of a bad situation in their family because there there wouldn't be this this moral difficulty um, of imposing costs on existing residents. Well, and let's just go to another level here. If your model required the whole world turn into that before it will work, then it's a fantasy, right? That's the problem. All the communists always say, no, we didn't have real communism. Next time it'll work. We, they didn't do enough, right? This is a sign. This is a, a fantasy and a cult. Um, so I do think there's an attractive element to what you've articulated. Let's take the case of the Rohingya who have been quite brutally oppressed in Myanmar. And no one wants them. Uh, they are forced into these camps that are prisons. They can't work. They can't produce wealth there. It's, it's such a miserable, terrible life. Uh, young people risk everything and they die on the sea just to get out someplace. They can work at some job illegally someplace. And if you did have a society that said, look, you want to come here and work? Okay, we don't have a big university system you automatically qualify to go to, but you can come here and live and no one's going to hurt you and you can work. I do think that that is, is one solution to this problem because the refugee camp approach that the UN and so on has, has put forward is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Generation after generation, look at the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, for example, uh, and then those people become prey to extremism. Uh, they're hopeless. They're not able to start businesses and so on. It's, it, it is a, just a nightmare. You know, we're in Poland right now. People, when the Ukrainian refugee issue came up very quickly after the predatory uh, Russian state invaded and began their process of genocide, millions of people came here and very wise of the Polish government. They got very good advice on this. They, did, they didn't want refugee camps. They said, you come in, 
you can come into Poland, no problem. We put a little stamp in your passport, and now you can work. You can work, you can get a phone, you can rent an apartment. Lots of people open their homes on a temporary basis to take in these people who had escaped the shelling and the destruction with nothing. And they said, you can work here. This is very wise, but unusual, just unusual. And so many refugees from state violence have no place to go. And instead, they are forever in these camps where they become perpetual dependents on handouts from UNICEF and, and uh, uh, other organizations like that. So I think that this is a very attractive element of what you're saying, to have enterprise zones, you could call them that, especially economic zones, whatever, where you can say, you know, you want to come here and work, no one's going to hurt you, you can get paid, you can work for companies, you can work on piecework basis, you can set up your own business, you can do whatever you want here, and live, and and make a future for yourself and not be sitting in some goddamn refugee camp forever, knowing your grandchildren will grow up in that camp. So this is, I think, a very attractive element of, of what you're articulating. I do think that you've you kind of brought in the assumption that self-governing groups wouldn't want to have a providential fund for people who fall on hard times. And lots of communities have had that in the past that are not tyrannies. The old idea of a safety net as opposed to a perpetual entitlement for life, that people experience misfortune. And yes, we have all kinds of insurance schemes to deal with these, but sometimes the the anvil that hits you is so heavy and so big, you didn't anticipate it, but members of the community are willing to help. One other element that's worth exploring in this context is to look at the extraordinary history of friendly societies, which can be a very important part of self-governing communities. So David Green wrote a number of important studies of friendly societies in the United Kingdom and in Australia. There are histories in Sweden and the United States and elsewhere. David Beto has a very good book on friendly societies, often workers' groups, often people who are uh, from the bottom of society in terms of social class, as in the former class-dominated systems, but they govern themselves, and a key, they had dignity, because they ran their own organizations, which meant also that they established their own principles of who was deserving of aid and who was malingering, that whole idea of the deserving poor really was a concept that came out of the laboring classes, not a concept from the ruling classes or from the rich. It was a concept that was grasped and articulated by the laboring classes. That yes, these people had misfortune as opposed to merely frittering away their time, and therefore the community and the members of the friendly society will help them. I think that's a great example. And the other thing about the friendly societies is that they were funded on a completely voluntary basis, right? There was no state mandate saying that people should join a friendly society. Um, they were hugely important in Britain before uh, the start of the First World War and the introduction of national insurance. And I think we, in a private city, we could see reintroduction of something very similar to those. Um, there's no, I think there would be 
if you had a system where people were taxed less and there was a, less of a burden imposed on them through centralized planning, there would be much greater scope for resurgence of friendly societies. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point. But I, I wouldn't say it's precluded by the, the private cities model. It's, it's more encouraged by it because you could have people voluntarily opting into these, these systems. And I think that if we allowed that to happen, then we'd actually see much more um uh, many more opportunities for people um like the the um, Myanmar group that you mentioned uh, to have refuge in, in in places where they currently don't do you want to is there anything you want to talk particularly about because we've been going for over an hour already and i i'm happy to sort of wind it down but i'm enjoying your your conversation so and you're kind of deeply into it i don't want to I got. I got. I guess I would be interested in if you've got a, a few more minutes just to answer kind of your thoughts on ideal governance system. Um, so we touched on it a little bit through Tim's question, but do you see basically in the future a continuation of the current nation states model, or do you think do you, do you think that there is a place for these kinds of private cities or do you think that it's better to have a sort of citizenship by birth and you potentially have a citizenship? Um, yeah, I'd just be interested to kind of unpack that a bit more. I think that the best can be the enemy of the good and the better. And sometimes we should be careful about saying we have this vision of this fabulous idea and overlook opportunities for incremental improvements to what exists now. And I think that what you're proposing is better understood not as the radical alternative, we're going to smash the, everything in the world and have this new thing, but as an incremental improvement and, and see if it takes off and how successful it can be and, and it'll evolve and long after you and I are dust and ashes, uh, there'll be other people experimenting with this. And uh, of course, maybe you're one of these people who thinks we'll live forever, but uh, uh, at some point, we won't, and other people will be working on these ideas and experimenting with new modes of governance. The Looking at it as an incremental improvement, I think, means that we don't abandon the search for constitutional limitations on predatory states. So I was just in Ukraine, came back just a couple hours ago, and we had a big conference there on improving governance in taxation because they have a big public goods issue, right? Uh, a predatory horde is invading, raping, looting, destroying, stealing everything and destroying what they can't cart away. I mean, I've seen it with my eyes. It's, it is uh, horrific what the Ukrainians have been subjected to. So it's a public good to buy weapons and ambulances and all those sorts of things. Lots of people are stepping up voluntarily. So Atlas Network Partners have put about $4 million into ambulances and medical gear and field hospitals and so on. And many other groups have put in a lot more. Um, but there's still this public good of all of Ukraine. So they need to raise taxes. Oh, excuse me, not raise taxes in the sense of the level of taxation. They need to raise revenues. And you can raise revenues, more revenues, with a lower tax rate in some cases, and certainly with an easier and simpler one. And so the conference that I was at that was co-sponsored by the Office of the President of the Republic was focused on a tax system that will be easy, simple, proportional, and fair. 
You make 100,000 grivnas, you pay, let's say it's 13%, you pay 13,000 grivnas. Your neighbor makes 200,000 grivnas, the neighbor pays 26,000 grivnas. It's twice as much for twice as much income. And you don't get the corruption that comes with everyone negotiating their own personal tax rate. So that's an incremental improvement. You know, you could stand back and say, oh, man, taxation is theft, right? There's, where's the social contract everyone signed on to? Say, okay, well, we can have that conversation as the Russians pillage the country and uh, rape their way through villages. Or we can say, look, this would be an improvement. A tax system that doesn't penalize investment, isn't complicated, doesn't cost a huge amount to comply with, and would raise as much war we estimate more revenue as a consequence to be able to defend the country. So that's a, an incremental improvement within an existing nation state that can be made more free, less burdensome, more just, more fair, and as a consequence, more prosperous and more secure. Those are all win-win incremental improvements that don't require us to say, no, 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 smash the, the nation state because... It was conceived in sin and conquest, all of which is true, by the way. So as an incremental improvement, I think this has tremendous uh, uh, potential. I think that as a, no, this is the alternative to everything view, um, I'm less enthusiastic, uh, less hopeful, because we then give up the option of saying, look, why don't we make the tax system and the governance system in Italy, Bulgaria, Brazil, U.S., whatever, Japan, a little better, a little freer, a little less burdensome, a little more open. But then the last point, why I think this is also a very interesting idea, is because of the opportunities it gives for people to try out new things. Mm. And if you want to look at what really raises income, so I'll come down to this question of economic growth, it's not just accumulating capital, and it's not merely having good institutions, although good institutions are a necessary condition. It's having a, a social order in which people are free to experiment. That's innovation. Innovation is what raises us. Innovation is what changes the lives of people from, border, from poverty to prosperity. So actually in this book, Development with Dignity, I open a chapter and I say, imagine a very, very poor country. The lifespan at birth is 44 years of age, 16 years lower than Democratic Republic of Congo. 28% uh, of the children uh, die before the age of five. So it's more than one in four children. 10% of the population work as personal servants in the homes of the rich. About 43% work in agriculture just to grow food. Uh, no one has a cell phone, television, or radio. Imagine what a poor society that is. That's the society my grandparents were born into in 1890. And what was at that time one of the richest countries in the world. Today, people would look at, at what I've just described and say, oh my God, that's got to be the poorest country on earth. And it would, it would be, that's right, it would be. What was the difference? It wasn't just accumulating more kerosene lanterns or more horses that got us jet engines. It was innovation.
And I think that a decentralized system like this, think of these as innovation hubs, has the potential to unleash that permissionless innovation that is the real driver of human betterment. And interestingly, at the sort of cutting edge of the Free Cities model, someone like Prospera, that's actually exactly what they're implementing at the moment. The the ability to experiment, I mean, they have the ability to create their own legislation on certain things. And that it seems to be the big driving force of the whole zone anyway. And as a result, they are chock-a-block with businesses coming in, trying things out. And I spoke, everyone we spoke to there mentioned that exact same thing, which is just give us the opportunity to experiment and fail uh, or succeed but just allowed to experiment is what, what what was the most exciting thing that was going on there. Basically, they're sandboxes for experimentation. And the spillover benefits of that kind of innovation are huge. So yes, entrepreneurs, innovators who come up with a new way to do something or adopt something in their community that's done someplace else, that's also an innovation. Uh, those people reap benefits. All of the available evidence is it's a very tiny slice of the total benefit that they generate, which goes to all the rest of the human race and raises the incomes of poor people tremendously. So this, I think, is is a, an exciting uh, element of this. That said, we might wrap up by saying I have concerns about thinking through the governance structures and bringing out the assumptions about limitations on the powers of governors over the people, even people who sign an agreement. You, you, in common law, we do not enforce specific performance in labor contracts. It's slavery, right? So if you say, I'll sing a song for you tomorrow, and I say, all right, here's 100 pounds for you to sing a song, and then tomorrow you say, eh, I don't feel well. I don't get to go and with a, a, a baton or a, a knife and threaten you with death if you don't sing the song. You Instead, we write a contract that says you give me the 100 pounds back. Right? That's how that's done. Uh, but those are, are implicit, in I think, in your model, is these substantive restrictions that are a result of thousands of years of legal and moral evolution to produce the concept of a free person. There are limits even on what I can agree to. I cannot agree to be your slave because it is an un unenforceable contract for reasons that John Locke and others articulated philosophically and then that emerged at the common law and that can be understood also through law and economics uh, as well. So those assumptions are embedded in your framework mm. and better just to bring them out. And be open about them. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair comment. I think those assumptions are embedded in the framework. And um, you mentioned common law. Um, that's the that's the system that's being adopted in in Prospera and the system that we tend to advocate um, for resolving disputes. Um, so yeah, I would agree that that's that's a really important point to be cognizant of. Great. Well, it's been a great conversation. I have actually one final question for you. This is a tradition we have on this podcast. Uh-oh. No, it's nothing too bad, I promise you. <laughs> um, I, I, it's a hypothetical question. I would like you to um, envisage you have a one-year sabbatical uh, during which you are 
endowed with wealth beyond your wildest dreams. You can do whatever you want. Mean Money's not thousands a of pounds. Yeah, <laughs> tens of thousands of pounds, even. Um, the point being, money is no object. You have a free year. What do you devote that year to? Hmm. And no work obligations, or for some reason those are precluded. No, it's because I find it's it very hard not to work. Well, you can work. I can. Well, I think I would work. I think I would do what I do now. Um, now, I also uh, I would love to be able to improve my French beyond its beautiful status today. Um, so I, I would want to spend some time immersing myself in the French language course so that the fewer tears were, were uh, brought forth by my pronunciation and by my gram command of the grammar. But actually, years ago, I was asked a similar question by a donor uh, to the Cato Institute, where I was working at the time, and I'm still a senior fellow at Cato. He said, Tom, and he asked your question. He said, you have so much money... How would your life be different? I said, well, I think I'd have a bigger apartment. I lived in a tiny apartment that was all books, had books in the kitchen and so on. So I'd have a bigger apartment, and I think I'd ski. I like skiing, but I don't get to ski. But I think I'd do what I do now. But don't tell my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, lo I love the work that I do. Yes. It's a common answer, funnily enough. Um, and I think it's quite an important answer. But um, Tom, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for coming and sparing some time. And thanks, Peter, for sitting in on this. I'm glad you did because uh, I was really enjoying what you, sp what you spoke about. Well, thanks. This was fun. And yeah, you've caused me to stretch my mind a bit and think about some of these hard problems again. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Tom. Thank you.